Hello, entertainment law nerds, enthusiasts, and aficionados, and welcome to another episode of the Dentons Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal Podcast. In this episode, we're continuing our discussion about the use of music in film and television projects, this time with a focus on licensing pre-existing music for use. But before we get too far into the discussion, our usual disclaimer. Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see dentons.com for legal notices. I'm here with my friend and colleague, David Steinberg. David, why don't we start the conversation by setting out some terminology in terms of the two different types of licenses that producers are going to need to obtain in order to, or, or may need to obtain in order to use a pre-existing song in their movie or film or TV show. Sure thing, Bob. Um, I think the easiest way to um, describe it is when we talk about a song, um, a song's got two components. It's got the composition itself, so if we were to talk in the context of the Beatles, I hope everybody knows who the Beatles are. Um, if we were to talk about the Beatles, Lennon and McCartney uh, wrote a song and then it's recorded by the Beatles. So there are two separate la layers of copyright in a song. There's the composition itself written by Lennon and McCartney. Then there's the master recording, which is recorded by the Beatles. So we tend to talk about the publishing, which is the comp related to the composition, the copyright in the composition. And we talk about the master, which is the recording of that composition. Those are the two uh, layers of copyright. Those are the two sets of rights that we need. So when we talk about a synchronization license or a sync license, we're talking about the publishing component, the composition. And when we talk about a master use license, we're talking about licensing the master recording. Right. And I guess one thing that's worth underlining at this point is while I think most people go in with the assumption that they will need both a master use and a sync license, um, you don't always need a master license, right? You can use, you can obtain a sync license and do a new recording of the song. You won't get the original popular you know, publicly released recording, but you can create a new recording specifically for use in this project. Is that something that you see done on, on a regular basis? Yeah, I do see that quite frequently. And, and you're, of course, absolutely right that me and you could record the McCartney composition. Um, it's safe to say that it would suck, but we could do it. Um, and it would not be as good as the Beatles version. Uh, but in that case, if we were creating our own master recording, uh, we were a film producer or a television producer, and we were uh, commissioning somebody to create the master, we would only need the sync license, in other words, for the underlying uh, composition. The other time when you don't need a master use license is in those instances where you might have an actor um, walking along the street humming a melody. Uh, so maybe they're just humming that melody. There's no actual master recording of it. So we only need the synchronization or sync license to cover off that piece of melody that they're humming. 
Right. Now, I wouldn't be so quick to prejudge the quality of our recording efforts, but um, <laughs> I think if people would just give us a chance, maybe. Depends who's on the lead vocals. Maybe there's something there. Well, Ken's available. <laughs> so one kind of tricky element of dealing with sync licenses as compared to masters is when you're dealing with a master, generally you're only talking about a single owner. Right. Usually you're only contending with, and it's usually a record company, uh, a single owner who owns all of the rights in the master uh, that you need to obtain. But when it comes to sync licenses, there can be multiple owners. And so how does that arise and, and how do people sort of navigate that? Yeah. So when we're talking about licensing music like this, one of the things that um, often comes into play is a music supervisor. Uh, that's a person who, um, you know, hopefully is up to speed on um, how to license from both record companies and music publishers. So a good music supervisor will analyze that song and figure out who the owners of the publishing are so that they can secure the sync license. And they'll figure out who the owner of the master recording is, which, which as you've pointed out, is, is normally a record company. Um, that same music supervisor will often have relationships with publishers and record companies and know approximately how much things should cost and how to get quote letters together and licenses finished. So um, you're right that the master owner tends to be a singular uh, record company um, and compositions are often co-written and can have multiple publishers. So you can find yourself in the position where uh, one publisher owns 75% uh, of the publishing on a composition and then the other 25% might be sprinkled around <clears throat> two or three owners, excuse me. And um, we would generally want to get consent or a sync license from every single one of those uh, owners of the publishing to make sure that we have uh, proper permission to use the composition. Right, so as a, as a practical matter, we, we try to make sure that we are accounting for 100% of those publishing rights. In other words, it's, it's generally not acceptable to you know, obtain permission from a majority of the copyright owners, you, you have to get 100% of the copyright owners to sign off. Now, how does that work in terms of pricing? So are you, are producers forced to negotiate with each publisher, uh, like potentially a different price? Or is there a single price which applies to all of the publishers and they just get their pro rata share? So any publisher can basically negotiate any way that they want, and a record company can negotiate any way they want. But the standard in the industry um, that we normally see is what we call MFN, most favored nations, which means equal treatment um, for both the master use license and the sync license in its totality. So generally the way uh, music supervisors or uh, companies licensing music um, or who want to license music will approach this is they'll start with the publishing side. So they'll go to the publishers first and try to establish a price. And um, let's say, uh, for example, it's $100 for the, uh, for the publishing and they have to deal with three different publishers 
They're going to spread that $100 around the three publishers. Then they're going to go to the record company and they're going to say, all right, we've been successful in licensing the publishing for um, or obtaining a license for the publishing for $100. And we want to do an MFN license with you, most favored nations, for the record side um, so that the master use license will also be $100. So it's very common to see MFN treatment as between uh, sync and master. And in the parlance of a trade, people will sometimes refer to that as sides. Um, so, you know, sometimes a music supervisor or somebody who's in the music business will say, you know, it's $100 per side. And what they really mean is sync and master use. I like that, the parlance of the trade, the parlance. Mm -hmm if you will, the parlance. Um, so let, I, I think a, a good way to go through these licenses is to focus on potential pitfalls. So potential problems or challenges that can be posed by the, the terms of the licenses themselves. So I think the first one I'd like to start with is the duration of the license. The Certainly, I think the default should be that the duration of the license should be in perpetuity, right? Um, now, obviously that's subject to budgetary considerations. Uh, getting a license in perpetuity is going to cost more than getting a license that's only running for five years or seven years or 10 years, of course. But I think it just makes everybody's life easier, assuming that they can pay for it. So why is a focus on the duration of the license so important? Well, we have to look at it in context of um, the program or the film itself. In other words, if we have licensed music uh, for only five years, one of two things has to happen after five years. Either the film or the television program is no longer exploitable with the music in it, um, and you'd have to stop exploiting that film or television show. Or in the alternative, um, you would have to go and um, renew that license. And if you don't have um, terms that will be applicable um, in those five years, um, in other words, you know you can come back in five years and renew the license for X number of dollars. For instance, maybe it's a negotiation in good faith. Um, it's a little bit dangerous if you don't have terms um, set. So the biggest problem with limited duration is it affects the uh, ability to exploit the program in which music is uh, embodied. Yeah, and I think producers really have to be careful and, and pay attention to the requirements that their distributors or exhibitors are imposing because they will often require um, that music be cleared you know, in perpetuity. Um, but if that's you know inappropriate because of the budget or or because of the nature of the of the project, they should take steps to make sure that their distribution obligations to their distributor or sorry their delivery obligation to their distributor uh, or to their to their licensee take account of shorter terms and and recognize that they're only obligated to deliver music that's been cleared for X number of years as opposed to forever. The other term that I find can pose some challenges is limitations on the use. And, and this, by that, I mean a few different things. So, so limitations on use, the license will usually describe 
the permitted use in the sense of you are allowed to take or play an excerpt of you know 30 seconds one time you know over the credits uh, or you are allowed to play the entire song multiple times at any point what are some other pitfalls that might arise in connection with with limitations on use in a license so sometimes the limitations may relate to media um, themselves so you know a common exclusion that we see especially with television series um, is theatrical. In other words, um, the, the licensor is not going to license the right to use the music um, for theatrical. Um, generally, we see nowadays that all other media are, are allowed. Um, back a few years ago, um, it was a little bit more contentious um, in and around digital streaming and the internet because the music industry um, had been stung by that and they were being very very careful about what kind of rights they were licensing even as part of a television or, or film production but that seems to have fallen to the wayside and generally we do see all media sometimes excluding theatrical but those um you know limitations can can come in all forms and shapes and sizes i mean sometimes uh people will license music for festival use only um or for very limited runs um that can happen but generally uh i agree that we're looking for all media um in perpetuity um so that we have the broadest possible rights um you know we have to look at at the production as a whole as being made up of all kinds of little pieces of intellectual property. And if any one of those pieces, be it music or stock footage or anything, um, is, is not exploitable or comes to the end of its license term, that, as I was saying earlier, affects the entire production. Yeah, I think the other thing that's worth flagging here is the issue of in-context and out-of-context uses. Right, because I think a lot of producers will walk in with the assumption that once they've licensed a piece of music uh, for use in connection with their project, they can use it in the project sort of and in connection with the project kind of as they see fit, meaning it can be in the film or TV show during its sort of, you know, chronological runtime, but also they can take clips featuring that song and use them in advertisements. Uh, in teasers, in commercials. And that's simply not the case. In fact, the, the sort of convention in the industry is that you have to specifically license what are referred to um, as uh, out-of-context uses separately that, that incurs a higher fee. And so I find that something that, that you know, poses a challenge and can, can trip up producers quite easily. Yeah, I think we get several calls a year about that. Um, where producers will, will sometimes call us after their music licenses have been done and they'll say, or they'll ask, what, what can we do um, in terms of uh, trailers, advertisements, promotion? Um, not always understanding the in context and out of context. So in context use means uh, that we've cleared the use of the music for promotional purposes. So that's the threshold. We have to make sure we have that right uh, that we can use it for advertisements and trailers, et cetera. And then in context means 
we can use the music as it appears in the film in its spot in the film. We can't remove the music and use it separately um, as a free floating piece of intellectual property in a trailer or promotion. That would be out of context. And as you say, that has to be separately negotiated. Right. I think another potential challenge and one that frankly, even we as, as lawyers struggle to, to deal with appropriately is when on the master side, there is an obligation to uh, make union payments. And so how do you sort of, in what context does that arise and, and how do you advise clients to deal with that? So there's been an interesting history with that one, because I think if we go back, uh, you know, maybe 20 years ago, uh, when a record company or label was issuing a master use license, it was sometimes silent on union obligations, um, which of course are, are the AF of M in the United States, the CF of M in Canada. And then all of a sudden, um, language started creeping in licenses into licenses because I think labels were being pursued by the unions um, and being asked to pay reuse fees on these licenses. So um, for many, many years now, uh, particularly major labels, but most labels will put language in saying that the licensee, the film or television producer, is responsible to pay reuse fees, if any, to the AFFM or CFFM as the case may be. Um, and generally, uh, you cannot negotiate your way out of that. In other words, record companies are, are normally insistent that that language stay in. And I think the reason for that is uh, they themselves, the record companies, do not want to be pursued by the unions. Um, they want the licensee to take on that obligation. And the reason they kind of transfer that obligation in, in a somewhat blanket manner to the licensee is because the record companies are licensing hundreds and hundreds of songs every year. They don't wanna be responsible to track these things and they certainly don't wanna be responsible for the, um, uh, for the financial part of the equation. Right, so if you're a producer and you're entering into a license which has those union obligations, make sure that you're fully informed as to the nature of those obligations and the cost of those obligations. And oftentimes that will require you to liaise directly with the unions. Um, because as you said, David, the, the record companies don't wanna sort of administer those rights or, or take on the burden of, of providing that information. Um, two final points, which I think we, we should discuss. So one is the issue of assignability. I think that, people can get trapped by no assignment clauses. So clauses which prohibit any assignment or transfer or sub-license of the rights that are contained in the contract. That's a particular pitfall for producers who are creating what we call service productions, projects that they are producing for another party. And um, because at the end of the day, the producer has to transfer the whole project, including all of those licenses to the commissioning party. Uh, and if they are contractually prohibited from doing so, that can obviously pose some challenges. And the way to address that is to build into that assignment clause an allowance for an assignment to a commissioning producer or assignments you know, in connection with the, the distribution and exploitation of the project. The final point, which I wanted to discuss was the issue of payments or royalties. And the question of whether 
the payment is just a one-time upfront license fee or whether there are ongoing payment obligations owing by the producer uh, or the distributor or, or exhibitor or whoever their licensee is to the licensors. So what are you seeing in that regard? Yeah, so that's that's a uh, an immediately complicated uh, question, um, simply because of the various layers. So let's put it this way: um, on the sync side, the publishing side, uh, producers will will often attempt to avoid payment of mechanical royalties um, for things like DVDs. Now that was much more common when DVDs were more common, <laughs> um, but they will attempt to get a waiver of the responsibility to pay mechanical royalties. Um, in certain instances, um, you cannot contract out uh, of that obligation. Um, if for instance, you're dealing with somebody who's a member of SODRAC, so in Quebec, so there can be issues there. Um, there are going to be public performance royalties uh, payable by the uh, end user, by the broadcasters, distributors, et cetera, um, to the performing rights societies. So there will be royalties that will be paid um, uh, directly to the publishers and the, and the composers, but uh, the film or television producer is not you know, responsible for that. That's really coming from the end users. And on the master side, um, it depends on the deal, but if you have the right to, let's say, issue a soundtrack recording uh, using that master, there would probably be sales royalties that would come into effect. Um, so there could be royalties there. Um, and, and I think it really depends on the circumstances and what, what your deal terms are um, as to what further payment obligations you would have. Right. Nice. So I guess, look, my summary and message would be get the rights in perpetuity, get them in all media now known or hereafter devised, make sure there's no royalty payable to anybody for anything at any time, uh, and that you uh, don't have any union obligations that you aren't aware of and don't know what to do with. So thanks, so David. That, uh, that's speaking from the, from the perspective of the film or television producer. That's from the heart. That, that's <laughs> me. That is Bob Tarantino's position on licensing music. Um, yes, no, clearly from the uh, from the producer standpoint. Um, well, David, thank you for taking the time to walk us through how master and, and sync licenses work in film and TV projects. And for our listeners, uh, please stay tuned for the next episode of the Dentons Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal podcast. Mm -hmm.